This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Daniel Howitt's interviews with the director for Migration. Benjamin Renner, and the film's composer, John Powell. Here we are together. We're on an adventure. Seeing what else life has to offer. Is that a little scary? Sure. But isn't it worth it? We're not going to make it, are we? Uncle Dan! What is this place? We are completely lost. Was your mother... That is not your mother. At it now. We're trying to get to Jamaica. It all so <laughs> Don't worry, Chump's got ya. So listen, Chump. What? Did Ooh. you just call me? Sorry, I thought your name was Chump. Yeah, Chump, yeah, that's my name, what? Right, so listen, Chump. What? Did you just call me? I'm sorry, is everyone else hearing Chump? What? <laughs> This isn't about migration. It's about adventure. Whoa, 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 hey! What just happened? I don't know, but you're in trouble. Benjamin, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me about migration. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, so thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a number of years since your last feature film. What first drew you to migration? The thing is, when I was reached out by Illumination to work on Migration. I was a little bit confused because, you know, I came from hand-drawn animation, a very small project and, and never done 3D before. And, and so I was a bit confused, like, in the sense that I, I love her movie, but I, I didn't think I had the skill to be a director on, on their movies. So, so I just went there, like, just to be polite, you know, like, just thinking, okay, well, I was going to understand that there's a misunderstanding and that's going to be it. And, and and there was no misunderstanding. He really wanted me to talk about like a project that he had in mind, and he pitched me the project. And and I have to be honest, I was very seduced by the um, the idea that he wanted to share. And I could tell that increases the producer's word that there was something very um, something that he wanted to do that was very relatable, something very personal as well. Like it was not going to be a film that's copying another type of film. It's really about like talking about personal experience, relatable experience about a family and you know, like something we all live about getting out of your comfort zone and getting stuck into the routine. And you know, this kind of issue that you can have within a family and how it can be a problem. And in a couple, like, you know, one, 
the father wants this and the mother wants something different and you still love each other, but you can't make each other happy. So, you know, he was telling me about that and it was so personal and I felt, wow, that's actually very intense and great. And, and it's a very serious theme, which is something that I love, like talking about very serious theme, but in a very lighthearted way. So, so I thought, well, you know what, I can try to help and we'll see how it goes, but I'm not sure I can do that, to be honest, but, but I'll, I'll bring the best that I can do, you know, like, narratively speaking or, you know, design speaking. I don't know, I didn't even know what I could do for the project, but we started working together and, and, and you know, like, uh, things went well, but, but basically yeah, at the beginning I was a bit, you know, like, scared of working with them, but, you know, like, five years later I'm a little bit less scared, but still, like, quite frightened, but, yeah. <laughs> Well, I definitely want to hear more about the animation style. The animation is so striking um, in Migration. How how did you adapt your distinctive style to this this 3D animation and uh, a whole new world? Well, it was very natural in the sense that, you know, we see the animation being made, so they show me the, the shots, you know, like, the first thing also, I, I participate a lot to the storyboard, so that I can already, in the storyboard, I'm used to sort of, like, give a lot of elements of what I want in terms of intentions. And the great thing about 2D also when you draw is that you can be very, very expressive, so you can very communicate really easily what you're trying to achieve, at least, you know, the goal that you're trying to achieve. and. And when I was watching the animation, I still had the opportunity of using my pen and drawings to draw over the animation. So I could sort of like bring ideas in terms of design or, you know, the way they're opening their mouth or the, 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 the kind of expression, the comedy that I wanted out of an expression, you know, like something that I, I wanted. And yeah, so, 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 I, so that's how we sort of like communicated together. I was using drawing that I'm used to, you know, that's my tool to express myself. And they could translate it in 3D, you know, based on what I was telling them with the drawings. So, so I think that's how we, you know, I was not really even conscious that I was, you know, like it was giving my style to the movie. It's just like the fact that the way I was giving them retakes or, you know, like just telling them, oh, you should do it this way or this way, was passing through drawings. So that's probably how I communicated this kind of personal spirit to the movie, in, in the animation at least. Yeah, and it, and it, like I said, it's gorgeous. I I really love the visual style of the film. I heard a quote from you. Uh, you you describe two D animation as additive, but and three uh, D animation as subtractive. I I just love to hear more about your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's something that I, I don't know. It's very personal. I wouldn't say it's a general rule. You know, it's just the way I perceived the the three uh, um, D animation and two D animation. It's just that when I do personally 2D animation, I tend to be very additive, as I say. I, I start with a blank page and I will add lines. And as soon as I have what I want, I stop drawing. You know, like, uh, basically a duck could be just one line and that's it. You know, like you can, you express what you wanted to express and that's it, you, you don't do more. So, so there's a sort of like minimalistic aspect to it that's very good for me. But some directors could like laugh at me, you know, like with a style, you know, like which would be much more complex. But mine is more like this. And, and 3D, what was concerning to me is that we had to define everything before it even existed. You know, like for example, for a set, a pond, you have to design all the rocks, all the trees, all the leaves in the trees. You know, like you have to say that this tree looks like that, this tree looks like that. And, and you end up with a, a, a pond with 
thousands of elements in it and, and things left and right and everything, which was very weird for me because I had everything and I couldn't get the sense of, it's like you were watching, a, for example, I don't know, you're watching a bird and you don't see a bird. You see atoms, you see feathers, you see, you know, like you see all the details, but you don't see the birds. You just see too many things. And, and when, as a 2D drawer, I would just draw a bird by just doing a line, like, like a sort of little V, and that's it, you know, I draw my, my birds. So. And, and in order to get, you know, for, for this pond, you know, that I was mentioning, in order to understand the meaning of what you're trying to express, you have to sort of like use the shadows, the lighting, the defocus to remove elements. For example, you shouldn't be able to count the number of leaves in a tree. You're sort of going to put them out of focus or in the shadow or something like that. You're going to use the atmospheric perspective to sort of like blend things together. So I had this feeling that when we were working, I had to trust the fact that we were going to subtract things, you know, like to make the image much clearer. But at the beginning, it was very discomforting because when I discovered the pictures for the first time, I was completely overwhelmed compared to the method that I used to have, you know, where it's more like you, you start from nothing and you add elements. Here I had everything and I had to be confident enough that we were about to remove things. Mm. I think it paid off so well. Well, you, you hit on the, the beautiful themes in the film um, as well. You, of course, the phenomenal Mike White penned the screenplay. Yeah. Um, and, and how do you balance the, the important themes? You know, there's themes of, like you said, letting, letting kids experience life and, yeah. and the, the, disagreements between the parents how do you balance the themes that are more adult well knowing you're still going to have plenty of kids watching yeah. this film well that, that's the thing i always love to do just you have a serious theme but you treat it the most lighter way possible and you know that's what life is basically you're, you're you're within your family and even the things that are going to make you laugh as a kid are things that are often related to adult thematics i don't know like it's it's uh, just life you know like you're just the only comedy that kids are laughing at that's purely kiddish is probably like fart gags and slapstick humor of people falling on the floor. But, but kids can laugh about adult thematics as long as it's treated in a lighthearted way, probably. You know, like it's going to be totally fine with it. Or at least I used to watch movies without... I know that my favorite movies as a kid were not especially like children movies. You know, I could watch, I don't know, like... I don't have an example right now. <laughs> but, but, you know, like I remember watching very adult movies as a kid and and just loving them as well when they were way too to you know like adult in a way then so so as long as there's this sort of like light-hearted aspect to it i think it's it's really okay to you know like talk to kids as well and and again yeah it's just like this the way you treat it is going to be essential to make sure that kids will love it as well yeah mm. that's amazing and and one of the fun things about uh being a road trip movie, things we love yeah. about road trip movies in general is all the different people you meet along the way, yeah. the groups you yeah. run into. Um, yeah. I t tell me more about the evolution of the film after you came on board. Were there were there other groups uh, that they ran into? You know, we have the great the herons and the yoga loving ducks and all those. Were there any that you had to cut for time or that just weren't working? No, it's more like the each sequence itself used to be quite different. You know, like each meetings were quite different. The herons were, 
I won't spoil too much about the movie, but the herons were actually sort of bikers, you know, like in a club, you know, like a weird bar in the side of a road, and, and they were really mean and trying to eat them straight away and stuff like that. The, the pigeons were more like, uh, seed dealers, you know, like very creepy people, like uh, dealing seeds to people and everything. And, and, and so we made them more like those weird sort of zombie kind of character, you know, that just wants to eat a sandwich and everything. The, um, it's funny because the, the farm was quite different. It was more, you know, like a, a nice place, but um, it, was, it was a foie gras place, I think, you know, which was a bit weird for me because it was very creepy. I've been, I've never been in a foie gras place, but it's the creepiest thing on earth. And when I read the script, I said, I don't think I can do that, guys. You know, like just the design of a foie gras, because there were the scene where we could see them eating, you know, from the, like being, I don't know, the, the stuffed or almost, you know, like, uh, you know, when, the, I mean, it's very creepy. So I said, maybe we can make it a very pleasant place and, and let's find this idea of how we can, Treat it differently, and it and when we changed, you know, like the the script, we actually it was a moment where we decided to make um, Gugu, who is sort of like the leader of those ducks in the in this farm. Uh, basically, there's the farm where, where the ducks don't understand why the humans are being so nice to them, so they they think they're worshiping each other. Like they, it's a sort of harmony place. So it's a sort of cult of ducks worshiping humans and etc. Because they're massaging them, they're feeding them, and everything. And there's this character who's sort of like a cult leader called Gugu, and he used to be the bad guy of the movie. And and he was very, I love this character because he was very cynical. And you know, like there was this thing where he, he didn't see the problem of being eaten by humans. He loved humans so much. He was like, why are you not happy? They love us so much for what we are inside. They really love us for what we are inside. You know, it's not just for the looks. And you know, he had a lot of great lines and everything. And I love his sort of like weird character, but it was a little bit too dark. So that's my dark sense of humor. That was the limit, you know, for the studio. But but you know, in a way, I'm I'm, I'm happy with the result, and I'm happy of you know like having the chance to create a sequence like that. You know, there were tons of different options. You know, like even Deroy at some point he was an actor at Broadway playing in a, in a Broadway show called Romeo and Juliet in the Caribbean. Like he was a, a, there were pirates and everything. So, you know, there were a lot of options. And I love as a director just knowing all the multiverse of what this film could have been, you know, like and, and all those characters and everything. So it's very interesting to work this way because you, it's fun, you know, you're play, it's like you're playing with toys and you go in adventures. And in the end, of course, you have a final movie, but it's, which is probably one of the best version of what all those things could be. But it's really fun just like going through this process. It's where all the fun is, I for me at least. Well, I, I want to hear more about your experience. And I, I, I think it's interesting that this is a film about a uh, family going to a new place, going kind of into the unknown, a journey they haven't been on before. And in the same way, like you talked about uh, up at the front, uh, this was your first time making a film in America, making a, a CGI animated film. Uh, did, what sort of similarities did you see to your own journey making the film and the characters? Well, for me, it definitely felt like I could see a connection, you know, like with the character, like just getting out of your comfort zone. I've never done 3D and everything. And at the moment, that's what I was looking for, like just getting out of your comfort zone. I, I had done two movies and they were very close in technique. Um, 
in the technicality of it. And I, I was about to do another movie and I felt like I was doing the same again. So I felt oh, I need to probably change and, and the opportunity came in. So I said, okay, that's going to be very discomforting for you. You might regret it for the rest of your life, but you have to try, you know, like you have to test it and, and see how it, it will go. You know, you won't die from it. So come on, do it. And it was very hard to be on, very honest with you. It was very complicated, a lot of sweat and tears and everything. And, but, but again, like, it's like when you're going on a journey, you know, with your, your partner, you know, when you're deciding your friends, you know, you go on a journey. And honestly, it's not always like sun and pleasure. It's going to be also moments, even with your close friends or partner, it's going to be yelling at each other or just like having those moments where you don't know what to do or you're lost. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not pleasant. But for some reason, when you end up going back home, it's such great memories. Even those bad moments becomes like great memories that you're so happy that you went through because you know you can w go through these kind of moments. So it's not pleasant to go through them, but at the same time, you know you have to get through them. It's like the dentist, you know, you have to get through those moments too. So, so that's how I sort of approach the movie. And, and for me, it was not always pleasure, you know, a pleasure. Of course, there were moments where I was disappointed or there were moments where I was, you know, like confronted to, 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 you know, like they were telling me, oh, you have to redo that again because we're not happy. And I was like, oh, come on, I can't find any other ideas. But, but in the end, you know, like I could find the solution and the emotion that you have when you find a solution to a problem that you thought was completely over and you were desperate about it is so emotional, but the memory of it is just, you know, like one of the best thing and you know you can get through this kind of experience. So that was just, you know, like there was a lot of similarities in a way, yeah. Mm. Amazing. Well, that's just about my time. Benjamin, uh, thank you so much. I, I love all of your films and excited for more so people much. to see it. Thank you so much. That's really nice of you to say. Bye-bye. What is that? What's It's you with LaRange on top. There's a whole world we've been missing out on. And we... Wow! When danger strikes, you do not run from it. Reload! We're going to finish this crazy, wonderful adventure. You're so adorable. Maybe I'll eat you. <laughs> Where am I? Huh? Go, go, go! John, I, I appreciate you taking the time today to talk about your work on migration. Great to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, migration has such a distinct sound, especially the, the vocal elements that are weaved throughout. What was the initial direction that you received uh, from, from Benjamin when you signed on to the project? I think he wanted, he wasn't quite sure, I think. He, he's a non-Hollywood, um, and I knew he was incredibly creative. So I knew I had to sort of try and keep my creativity up. And I think with Christmas, I, I, tried, I tried lots and lots of things. He came to my studio in L.A. Um, in January, and so I'd prepared, I don't know, 15 different ideas some stupider than others and um and i just sort of play them 
to him and watched his reaction, which is hard because he as an incredibly emotionally sort of bountiful filmmaker will not show any of it on the outside whatsoever. <laughs> He's like, just puts on this front, which is that play him something that he hates or you play him something you absolutely love. And you won't know until he starts to tell you. Uh, it's quite rare. To the truth. Most people give it away in their body language. No, nothing. You don't get anything. You no idea which way he's going to go. So I played loads of things, and he was always, he was surprised by the effectiveness of classical music in his film. He thought of that really. A huge classical music fan, um, and I think he found that to be kind of wonderful. We we, we had talked about obviously things like uh, Peter and the Wolf has a duck in it, things, um, and he's got an extensive knowledge of classical music. I, I think he just didn't think that that fits into. He didn't know how to ex sort of explain that would fit into one of his films. I think he liked that. And then some of the ideas uh, uh, for a chump, I had a weird kind of sliding thing on a African harp called Cora, and it, and it just was was wonky. And I think he liked that wonky lesson. And then I'd already done something else, not quite what's on, but I'd done something else with um, with the kind of those female voice, you know, sixty male voices. You know, I I always liked. Um, you know, Michel Legrand stuff, you know, that, that kind of mad 60s, 60s pop as, as aesthetic. Um, and obviously that was probably completely uh, subconscious. I mean, it's like, I wasn't thinking, oh, it's a French guy. I'm going to sound French. It, it just popped out, I think. And maybe subconscious saying, you know, just see if you can insult him in some way. And, <laughs> and he found it. So this one sort of couple of days where I played him all these things and we worked a little bit uh, right at the very beginning um, was was the key to sort of knowing that he what he wanted and what he was reacting to. Obviously, only when he told me, not but I could see. But that that gave me a, gave me a language that I could sort of head into. And then the next meeting we had, believe it or not, I'd done about a third of the film in one go, right in the middle, a big bunch of stuff. Uh, 20, minutes, 20 minutes of music is, is rare. Normally you, you sort of start with smaller bits, but I wanted him to, I wanted to sort of tell him, okay, here's a tone for you. We've got plenty of time. So to just see his reaction to a tone that wasn't like the temp at all. The temp was very bitty and I was very concerned that the film needed flow. But you can say, say that if you get into the weeds too much about every individual kind of um, sort of part of the film and every detail, you might not ever get to the point in which you can show for flow. So it went a bit arse backwards, but it made a point. And I think that is a sort of a, a good a good sense of, well, creativity and flow are are going to serve, serve this film well. And I think then he relaxed and and then we really could get down, get down to a business of every, every single QQ, every detail. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As you referenced, there's lots of vocal stylings in in the score here. So tell me about that process. How did you tell me more about how you settled on that sound and and how you recorded those the process? Well, I try things that either result in they either result in um, 
in a stern look, you know, which is that's not working, um, or that's too stupid for the film, or or people laugh. And the thing is that they've been working on this film like four four years when I come on board. So if you can still make them laugh on a scene, they see a value in it. Now you have to be careful that they're not just sort of bored with the movie themselves and that you're overcooking it. And I think over the process of you know finishing a film, you try lots of crazy stuff and you realize what is overcooked and what isn't. Um, but that stuff was just make, making him amused. And, and, and I think he got nervous about it until we sat down with Chris Melodandri, the head of the studio, who I've known for a long time and, and is just one of the most wonderful actual filmmakers himself, apart from being a marketing genius and everything else. Um, and when he sat and watched that, he just loved it. And it was the opening titles. And there used to be a song there until the last minute, and they, they they decided they didn't want the song, so I I did that version of of the tune, um, right on the opening titles, and I, Chris Melodandri just found it, you know, to capture what he thought the tone of the film was. So then we were off and running. I mean, there's there's some stuff later on that gets even stupider, where I did a similar sort of vocal stylings for the um, you know the the duck world, the perfect duck world, which may or may not be a sort of foie gras factory, let's put it that way. Um, and and we were recording it all here um, at uh, Nate Barr's studio. He's got a wonderful studio. He's got the studio that everybody wishes they had but could never afford um, another composer. And he's got this beautiful room. Um, and we recorded, I think it was 12 singers, 12 women, um, we had to do all sorts of things. They'd make it sound classical, had to make it sound, you know, this kind of 60s pop style. Um, and we were doing it with all the singers and and it was working extremely well, that section. And then one of the singers said, um, can we do it in quacks? And I, I had enough time. So I was I indulged them and I thought this is this is a, this is definitely a bridge too far. And and we tried it. And I didn't realize at the time that um Benjamin, who was in France listening in on a, a link. Uh, and then I, I immediately get this message, which is, that's the funniest thing I've heard. Yeah. And so we kept it. And, uh, you know, I was still doubtful until the end. But, um, you know, he, he loved it. Everybody else seems to find it very funny. Um, I just worry that, you know, I've always gone too far, but that's just my nature. No, I love that. I was definitely going to ask about those quacks. It's a very good moment. Yeah. I also love hearing you you describe the work as stupid, which, uh, you know, I love that you don't you you see that as the truth, not as the the uh, an insulting phrase. It's hilarious. It's oh, no. so good. It's the greatest. It's the greatest compliment that I could ever have. The stupidest music ever written would be right up there with, you know, uh, transcendent in my eyes. I mean, beautifully, beautifully stupid is 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 the transcendent sort of thing I've listened to and loved. Uh, Esquivel. I don't know if you've ever heard any Esquivel. It is absolutely batshit crazy. Uh, and when especially you have to listen to his stereo album in with headphones and it will just don't try and walk at the same time. It's it's just too much. <laughs> That's a great recommendation. Well so migration is is a road movie, you know, it's a it's a trek across part of America. How did how did that traveling kind of idea or traveling through America? How did that infuse your score with a sense of adventure? Well the important things were the traveling meant forward motion and that was one of the, that was that 20 minute section that I wanted to 
let Benjamin here, it's like for flow. It's like keeping moving all the time. Just keep it rolling, everything rolling all the time. So we move forward. But more significantly, this is very much came from Benjamin, which is that we must never know this is America. We must never know where we are or it's it's all unfamiliar land to to mac this is all new to him and it's a it's a glorious new to the family but to him everywhere could be incredibly frightening and 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 dangerous so new york is not the fun new york we know of it's a mysterious kind of monolithic um place which has a madness going on at the ground level um and so we work very hard on trying to make sure that you know you you end up in every place that we would recognize as if it was a new experience for these aliens um and and, and that made it much more fun it, me- it meant that jamaica doesn't have to sound like jamaica <laughs> uh what we think of as jamaica jamaica was basically the destination and that was the fulfillment of you know sort of them- thematic material so right from the beginning you know the when the first sort of flock arrives and and Pam sees them. That's a tune that I keep going all the way. And that really develops all the way to that's the Jamaica tune or it's the 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 want tune, the hoping tune. Um it's also a family tune. So it wraps everything together. Um and and that means that I never except for, you know, when we're obviously we're in Salsa Tuesday, we have New York, we have a salsa uh, you know, kind of evening that isn't even what it is. It's, it's the most dangerous sort of event that anyone could have. I mean, so I, you know, we had this great track of the Beyonce, and it, but it has to change from this thundering kind of being in the middle of a, a stampede to the joy of realizing that if you just go with the flow, things will work themselves out. And, and so, even though I had this great track, I just added some score on it a little bit, the front, and and then really kind of made it, you know, made it go crazy by the end. So you saw the the evolution just within that one scene. But it it's it's not supposed to be, you know, place or time isn't important. You know, emotion is the the most important thing in the film. Was there was there a piece like a theme uh, or a character that was harder to find the right emotion uh, that, that was harder to crack for you? Yeah, I think the, the chef. Um, uh, I I had a lot of kind of usual, you know, maybe more usual bad guy tunes, um, and Benjamin kept saying to me, uh, you know, I, the thing about him is he's an animal, and I thought he meant, you know, he's just a he's a mean guy, you know. No, he meant as in all the ducks, all the animals talk in the film, and all the humans do is grunt. So the idea is that all humans are sort of the animals, and he is the most you know the predatory animal um and so it was quite hard to find a tone for him but in the end i I just found a few notes and there's there's a bunch of sort of things it it, it turns out that that chef is based on a real chef which i'm i'm glad he didn't tell me because i would have probably gone there and made it a little bit more obvious and it's probably best it, it, it you know it needs to always be vague. That's that's the great thing. Is an animal a predatory animal is a predatory animal, and you don't necessarily have to know where they came from. <laughs> Again, that, that's true of of the whole films. Like, take take the specifics out, and just just always try and go with the emotion. Which in his case is he he's never going to stop. He's hungry. I think that's that that's the the sound I I eventually got for him. Thought he was kind of hungry. 
That's great. Uh, well, you referenced earlier how, you know, you, you joined this project something like four years into the process, you know, animated films take take forever and you come in kind of kind of at the back end. Uh, yep. Do you ever get stuck, not necessarily on migration, but maybe in, in previous projects? Do you ever get stuck in uh, con- trying to convince a director to move away from a sound? Maybe they've used temp music or, or pre-existing things. Do you ever find it difficult to get a filmmaker to kind of move away from what they thought because you've got a, a, a better idea? Yeah, well, is it better? That's the question. It's a different idea sometimes. Um, I think it, it's about it's about does it connect into the soul of the film? And some things are built, yeah, some things are built the way they're built, and there's really not much you can do about that. And that's actually fine. You have to accept that because more than accept, you have to embrace it. It is part of the nature of a film if there's an idea that has been a a significant part of making a certain section of a film work or making a certain tone work. And when you sign on to things, I think you have to have a conversation. We always have a conversation about, um, you know, what what is the essential nature of the film and what the essential nature of the music might be. And you hear early on in these conversations, you'll hear things that, that tell you, oh yeah, there's a sort of a, there's already been something established and you either have to be okay with it before you start working yourself or you have to say, well, I don't think I can help. I think other people could help better on this. For me, it's about looking at what in particular temp music is, is saying. Obviously the first time I ever see the film, it's never have, it never has any music in it. I, I see it bare. Um, filmmakers, hate that because they they're so used to the tempo then but for me i i cannot listen i can't have any music going because it distracts me from what the actual story is and i'm filling in the gaps in the back of my head but i'm just allowing myself to be sort of the audience for the for the only pure time i have this is the, the only actual time that when i can be an audience member is that first time through and if i have music yes it might be guiding me as music does but i I, in theory, I shouldn't need that. I should. The film will guide me, and I'll see where it's going, and f- see how it's moving, and and where it's stepping to, and where the story changes, and all those, the beats of the story. And if they're not there, it's great because I can also tell the filmmakers why well, I didn't get that at all. And then you know, okay, well, the temp music did that, so that that's why they weren't concerned, and they can either decide to make that clearer in the filmmaking or. Again, we come along, we go, okay, well, that needs to be pointed out by the music. And obviously, that differential between what they wanted in the film without temp and what, what they get, what it, what it looks like to me is how I operate, really. That's, that's the place I operate. It's like, I saw this, you want it to be this, we need to do this. Now, if, if I'm not doing it exactly like the temp, but I clearly understand why the temp was there, then it never seems to be a problem. It's if I don't understand, if there's something about the temp that is, and the only time I've ever had that is when there are deeper connections for a filmmaker than I could possibly ever know. And I've often made the point, which is if there are deeper connections with that piece of music than I know, then that's the same for the audience. So they may not get it. You have to be aware of that. Mm. Mm. That's really good. Well, you have scored a number of animated films and live action films, and I'm sure you've been asked a million times 
about the differences between scoring for animation and for live action, which is an interesting question. But I, I, I now you you're scoring uh, in in a couple of years the live action adaptation of How to Train Your Dragon. I'm not sure if you started working on that yet or not, but has that prospect at least changed the way you think about the difference between these two moving from animation to live action? I, I don't know yet. I mean, it's very, very early. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're still very early. I, obviously I talked to Dean about it because it, wonderfully it's, it is Dean directing again. Um, you know, he, he, if he goes back to his original script for dragons one and he shoots that he'll end up with an amazing movie. It's a great script. Um, there are things about animation that that I'm sure has have to rewire itself in the story uh, and in performances. And the lack of reality, obviously, in animation requires for live action, as I said earlier, this this kind of reset. So the question will be is how does this score work? How does the existing score work against live action? And that that will be the thing that we investigate. In a, you're right, a couple of years, <laughs> maybe. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, but you know, sort of with trepidation because I don't want the score to. I don't want to use the score because it's it's a you know it's it's the score to the first movie. This movie has to be what it is. I'm sure lots of things will overlap. I'm sure there's 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 plenty we'll do, but I also have a feeling there may be a this additional language I need to sort of develop um, that that allows us to be more in the reality that we see because it's live action and that that will that will be an interesting and intriguing exploration i think well i i loved your work on migration um i I also couldn't let you go without uh asking about your work in one of the best documentaries of the year uh, still the michael j fox documentary Uh, as far as i could tell i was looking through your your filmography as far as i could tell was that your first time scoring a documentary yeah Wow. Yeah. So what was unique about that experience for you? I found out how hard they are. <laughs> I'm not I feel, I feel like that one in particular, which utilized a lot of, you know, clips uh, from filmography and, pro- and probably pieces of existing score. Yeah. T- yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it, it has it has one of the most brilliant scores in it as well, which is by Alan Silvestri, uh, Back to the Future. And the way they cut that whole section together, that was one of the first things I saw in that I was. Um, you know, sort of dazzled by it, um, and and I think Davis looked for somebody who wasn't used to doing documentaries very deliberately. Even though it was kind of it was hard for me, very hard to pull towards what documentaries need. Um, I found myself a little out of out of my comfort zone because it's not it doesn't have this narrative structure I'm used to seeing um, in the kind of the fog of. As, as you're making a film, there's kind of a fog. But I think over the years, I, I, I've got used to sort of being able to pick out these little kind of slight, slight, uh, slightly different, darker areas where you can see, oh, this is this is how the film will work. This is how the story will work. With this, it's it's it was a you know because it's documentary. He's discovering the story as it goes along in a way, and that proved to be hard for me. And then, but he did want he did want somebody to come along and and not not score a he didn't want somebody to come along and do a score for a parkinson's movie and i got that very quickly he didn't say that to me in the beginning he just played me something very early on 
when we were talking about maybe doing it. Um, he played me a bit with some temp, and I, and I kind of I furrowed my brows and I said, "This is that doesn't seem like Michael to me. He's, that seems like we're we're feeling sorry for him. He doesn't want us to feel sorry for him. He's the most joyful sort of um, you know self-induced hero of of his own story. I you should just why does it have to be so you know kind of down it doesn't so i think that got me the gig because i was reactive that way and and when we started i i i presented lots of sort of fun upbeat things to davis and and we tried them out and and some of them were better than others some of them were way out cranked obviously because i was so used to other kinds of mediums and documentary doesn't work that once i once I reduced the the size of the instrumentation, as it were, to just a few instruments and a quartet, uh, and got got myself out of sort of the lush sound I'm probably used to, um, it obviously got a bit uncomfortable for me. But I mean, I played in lots of quartets in the past, so I I suddenly realised, oh, this is a language you should know how to work in. Um, but it was always just about joy, and I think that was the f- fun part of it and the thing that works well there's obviously moments when we had to we had to we had to you know support the turn in the stories uh but for the general part it was just about making sure that you never you never felt sorry for michael and that michael felt like an energy uh the fact that you know it's right from the very beginning you know, it's, this whole thing never stops moving I just needed to sort of create music that was always doing that for him. And it seemed to then really attach it. So once we got it right, it just attached itself, you know, well. And, and Davis was, you know, he led me very carefully through through a land that I didn't know, but I enjoyed. Mm. Uh, and I enjoyed the process of watching it as well. It's a phenomenal documentary and your work is great in it. As is Migration, I can't wait for more people to discover Migration and hear your work in that as well. So, uh, Uh, John, again, appreciate your time. Thank you. Very kind. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interviews with the director for Migration, Benjamin Renner, and the film's composer, John Powell, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Migration is currently playing in theaters from Universal Pictures and is up for your consideration for this year's Academy Awards for Best Animated Feature Film. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, 
a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.